Welcome to Mandy the ABA and Aditi the OT's podcast. We are two women across two time zones from two cultures, two allied health fields offering two very different perspectives. Yet we have a common goal of breaking down barriers and creating breakthroughs to promote interprofessional collaboration. Episode 20, The Trick to Writing Smarter Goals. Hello, collaborators. So a few weeks ago, we heard from Professor Dr. Kabina about the importance of considering frequency rather than percent correct. I'm sure that rocked everyone's world because that was so outside the realm of conventional wisdom. And while we're on this path of challenging conventional wisdom, we decided to take a look at where it all starts. Well, it's, of course, the goal writing process. So for OTs and ABAs alike, we both start writing goals with the intention of being client-centered and the words observable and measurable are hammered into our heads. Many of us therapists are familiar with using very popular acronyms, SMART or COAST. Um, These are two goal writing acronyms that um, everyone seems to use in the therapy world to achieve the goal of being measurable and observable. And, you know, it's interesting to think, well, are there any alternative methods or are there deeper perspectives that we should consider? So to answer this question, Mandy and I have summoned Liz Lefebvre, I think I said that wrong, all right, I don't know, and Amy Evans to help us answer and talk through a very novel perspective to help us in this endeavor of writing smart goals, but perhaps a little smarter. You know, it's not completely revamping it, but just looking into it a little bit more. So once again, a little teeny weeny reminder that we're not here to make anyone wrong or right, but instead to shed light on different perspectives to spark the three C's again, curiosity to learn, consider another approach and become very comfortable with the discomfort of collaboration. Hi guys, welcome to this podcast. I'm very excited to welcome to guests that I uh, stalked on Facebook. I (laughs) tend to hunt down awesome people in this field that we're practicing in of precision teaching. And I have two incredible women here who have an extraordinary background in precision teaching and, and expertise that, you know, amazing contribution to the fields that we all operate in. I'd like to introduce today Liz Lefebvre. Is that right, Liz? Very close, Lefebvre. So, oh, yes, yeah, sorry. So close. That's my Australian accent showing through. And Amy Evans. And I'm going to hand over to both of them to introduce themselves and um, explain how I managed to stalk them and talk them into uh, speaking with us today across four time zones. So I think Liz, you tell me you're based in Seattle. We have Amy in Rhode Island, and then uh, we have Aditi in Chicago, and me in Australia very early in the morning sucking down on my second coffee. Um, so, Liz, would you like to start and just tell us uh, how you got into this field and, um, yeah, what your passions are? Sure, no problem. Um, so glad to be here. So I have been in the field of precision teaching and applied behavior analysis for oh boy, 15 years plus, and started working, actually my undergraduate is in speech and hearing sciences. And so I got interested in um, helping children with more language-based stuff early on. I actually was a nanny for a child that had autism, and that's kind of how I got into the the whole idea of, of working with, with kids. Wound up getting a job as a behavioral therapist for a company here based in Seattle, 
um, when I was in college. And then from there, they were like, you got to get a master's degree. And so then I wound up at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, got my master's there, and then came back here to Seattle and was in clinical practice uh, doing ABA home programs with children with autism for a while, spent some time at Morningside Academy. And now I am in private practice. I have clinical practice in Seattle, a couple clients overseas in Hong Kong. And then last year, joined forces with Amy to work uh, doing consulting and organizations and training other practitioners in precision teaching and behavior analysis. That's fantastic. Incredible history there. But also, this is something I think in the precision teaching world that's really missing. And that is, once people get passionate about the chart and how to chart, you know, how do you learn how to use it within your organization and implement practice and procedure? So that's just such a fantastic contribution. Thank you so much, Liz. And Amy, can you do the same? Sure. Let's see where to start. I've been a BCBA, board certified behavior analyst, for a few years now. Got my start about 10, oh geez, now I'm looking at 12 years ago. Um, I was one of those many undergraduates in psychology with no career plans, and that was very stressful. And I just, one, I had a very interesting set of experiences that led me to working. Uh, my very first job in the field was at a well-known um, learning center, and I got to learn about precision teaching. And I thought that that's how everybody did education and behavior analysis. And then I started learning about behavior analysis and education and learned that what I was doing was completely uh, very different and unique. So I've just really dove into that and have spent a lot of my career just moving around the world to work with various precision teachers and learn more about it. So I did my master's under Rick Kubina at Penn State University. I got to work with Elizabeth Houghton in Hong Kong for a bit. I've worked with Richard McManus in, in the Boston area. So I've just spent a lot of time learning about precision teaching and how it works in different settings. So then I got to be involved in starting a software company where I got to train people how to use it. And I got really interested in training there. So I've been bugging Liz for years. Like we have to be training people out in the world about how to do this stuff. So that's, uh, that brings you to the end of my story where we are now. Thank you so much. You both look so young to have done so much. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, thank you. That's awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. So we're just so grateful to have you here today. As I say, I stalked you both on, <laughs> on Facebook and asked for uh, volunteers. And so what I love about this precision teaching community is that just really want to share your knowledge. And, you know, there are literally thousands of years of knowledge within the precision teaching community, but it's still so rarely known throughout our world, even in the behavior analysis world. So thank you so much for being here today to share with our audience that quite kind of reaches across occupational therapy and obviously behavior analysts. And then we have speech therapists and physical therapists listening in, psychologists. So we're just so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for coming to talk about the chart. Sure. Um, Aditi, where would you like to start? Well, you know, I wanted to say that I have never met Mimi and Liz, so I'm glad to meet you both virtually. But I have sort of semi-stalked you in a very sort of surreptitious way. And every time I had a question, I would post it on, you know, the standard acceleration chart. And you were also willing to help and give me answers. So thank you. And that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this episode, because I really think 
it can reach um, more OTs who are looking for answers when it comes to goal writing. So if you guys have any questions, OTs out there, you know, Liz and Amy are always very willing to answer. And, um, you know, if you're interested, obviously, reach out to us and we'll connect you. But let's talk goals. So my first question, which I wasn't sure when I was chatting with you guys um, via email, we in OT and SLP tend to use the SMART acronym to write goals, you know, specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-bound. Is that something you use in ABA? I would say it was something that I was exposed to in my education, but I studied special education, and so that might be part of the, the difference there. We learn about behavioral objectives, and behavioral objectives have to have certain pieces to them that the SMART goals paradigm fits in really nicely with. So that would be my answer to that. There's certainly a lot of overlap between an objective needs to be measurable. You need to say at what point they will have acquired that skill or mastered that skill. You need to define the specific thing and in what context it's being targeted or assessed. Right. We Yeah, we talk about it as an observational definition it has to be included in that somehow. So you have to be able to see exactly the behaviors in that goal. When you're writing that goal, you have to be able to basically visualize those behaviors that you're looking to change. So when... Um you're writing a goal in behavior analysis. Is it basically your starting point? Is it observable and measurable? Is that the starting point? 100%. Yes. <laughs> and a lot of behavior analysts will tell you that what's supposed to be really special about behavior analysis is the focus on data and measurement. But as precision teachers, we, of course, dive a lot deeper into uh, data and measurement. And so I think there's there's lots of variation within the field of behavior analysis in how those things are are done. So I think that may be where the distinction starts is, uh, or maybe not, like if you have a client and I have a client, and we both have a shoe tying goal. Where is your starting point? Because my starting point would be, and I'll just give you an example, Johnny will tie his shoes, uh, you know, three out of four times with 100% accuracy. That's where I would start. One of the things we do as precision teachers and also behavior analysts, but primarily precision teaching is where this comes in, is that we tend to look at things at a really fine level. So shoe tying, if you break it down into its components, so it's different parts, you know, there's some moving your hands in different ways of tying loops. There's, you know, crossing the laces over. That's a different behavior than making a loop is. And so we look at it on a more fine level. And depending on where the learner is coming to you in terms of their current skill set, then that would definitely make me change how I word my goal based on the situation. So for example, if I had a learner who had some muscular issues where the muscles weren't strong enough, that's going to be a very look very different than a learner who has no issues with their hands and their fine motor skills. They just don't know how to complete that algorithm. So I would first look kind of more specifically at that particular situation to determine which direction I would write that goal. So that would be the first thing. And I think the second thing I would look at is as 
shoe tying includes a variety of different behaviors. There's going to be what we call in precision teaching component skills and, and tool skills. So these are kind of the prerequisite skills that need to be in place in order for us to make progress on that bigger goal of tying a shoe. So if you can't pinch, if you can't pull, those are, are specific behaviors that go into shoe tying. So that's kind of how we would break it down. So I might write a goal that says something similar to what yours was with where they're going to accurately tie their shoe. But that might not be where I start. I might start with just teaching them to, to become fluent with making loops with a shoelace. Or I might teach them to just pinch and pick up the edge of the, of, of the shoelace. It just depends on where they are. So in, um, you know, in that example, I think, you know, I would start with that. That would be what, what we would call a long-term goal. And then I'd have objectives for each quarter. I'm just talking about school setting here. So I think what you're telling me is that you're going even finer and more precise. So an objective for the shoe time goal might be Johnny will complete uh, the first two steps, three out of four trials of 100%. And so you going even further, but I'm sorry to interrupt you. The, the other thing I was thinking of is really using your, I think you guys call it more of a task analysis. We call it an activity analysis. So I might have all the steps listed out of shoe tying. And then if my learner has the skills to do each of those steps individually, and all they need to do is learn how to chain it together, then I would just put in the task analysis and, and go. But if my learner is missing some of those individual skills, I would pull those out and do, teach them separately. So it's almost like we would have this overarching goal, and then we would have all these little benchmarks that I might be working on simultaneously that will all move towards meeting that same larger goal. When would you decide, for instance, so let's just say we have a task analysis, uh, shoe tying is uh, close to my heart, we do that with a lot of students in a uh, lab. And so when would you decide, for instance, or how would you decide that each of those components, and I appreciate that the task analysis might be different depending on the learner, that each of the components of that task analysis are at a rate or at a level of fluency that us is sufficient that you don't want to just train the individual component. Would you do an assessment? Would you, um, you know, would you take data on the individual component? For instance, if you have a kid that is having difficulty picking up the laces to start with, so they don't have, you know, a strong pincer grip, would you look at fluent performance of that skill to decide whether you want to train that component as opposed to training the whole, all of those skills at the same time? I think that that's a really interesting question. And there's a lot of things to think about with how we might observe that learner to determine that specifically. Um, sometimes it's obvious that that one step, if it's without even measuring necessarily in our observation, without even measuring their rate of responding on a pinching task, we might just watch them try to tie their shoes. And it might be obvious that this particular step is not something that they just don't know how to do. It's something that they just are struggling to complete that step comfortably. And that's enough for me to know that I want to work on the fluency for that skill without even necessarily going in and taking each thing, each of these things apart in my initial assessment to see, can they reach and pinch at a rate of 200 per minute? But that's where I'd want to get them in order to make sure that they can 
use that skill when it comes to time to pick up those shoelaces. I want them, I want that skill to be so ready, just at the absolute ready, automatic. They don't have to think about it. It's not labor intensive. It's no longer kind of scary to or difficult to engage in that. That's what I would say to that. Do you have an assessment tool for fine motor skills? Well, um, <laughs> I have spent a lot of time, actually a couple of years ago, I did a project. I dug into what's called the big six plus six. Mm-hmm. And I just read through a lot of the literature that comes from primarily from the precision teaching community. But there was a lot built into that that clearly came from physical therapy, occupational therapy, and just tried to pull some things together. And I'm still totally not an expert just because I haven't worked with very many learners who need to develop those skills specifically. So I wouldn't consider myself an expert, but I have done some reading on this. And um, the big six plus six is a set of fine motor skills that if you just pull a few materials, there's lots of ways to informally assess just in a, let me give you 10 seconds and see how many times you can pinch this particular item. And I might play around with that at different levels of resistance. But I think actually that's one of those things that I've always wanted to spend more time talking to an OT about because they might actually have better tools for those kinds of assessments than I can come up with on my own. Yeah, I would agree. Well, we have a lot of tools that we're good at. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and and that right there is a, another podcast episode. Uh, <laughs> sorry to take you off task there. So in other words, you're looking at the bigger picture, you're observing the child, trying to complete that skill as kind of like a baseline assessment. You are observing that there are components within that skill that the, the learner may be struggling with and so haven't attained mastery or uh, fluency of that individual skill and then you're going to determine whether there are some individual skills that could be worked on on their own to improve um, a child's ability to um, perform that larger skill is that is that kind of a a summary of of where you'd get to yeah I think so Mm. I think the key point is not necessarily in that initial assessment. I know I described that, but I think the key point is that I would make it one of my targets to build fluency with that specific tool skill in isolation if that's what I'm seeing my learner needs to needs to do. I think also in the in the PT world, we define fluency by a set of outcomes checks and, and I refer to them as RESA. You could have also heard of them referred to as REAPs. Um, retention, endurance, stability, and application. And so you're not fluent at a skill until you can perform those th- that skill across those conditions. So retention would be after a period of time with no practice, can you come back in and do it just as fast, just as fluently? Um, endurance would be after a, a for an extended duration of time. So if you had been practicing for 10 seconds, can you do it for 30 seconds and still keep that that rate of responding? Um, stability would be in the face of distraction and application would be doing it at that same rate with novel stimuli. So because we define fluency by these outcomes measures, then we can say if the skill doesn't show up in the natural environment, so on that task analysis for shoe tying, then it by definition isn't fluent. And so that's when we would say, oh, 
there's something to do. Let's go back and put it, break it down into its component and teach it to fluency. And then let's put it back into the natural environment. Does it work? Yes. If not, go back and, and problem solve some more. So Liz, I just want to stop there for a second. We have this thing called a pause button because um, what you just said there in the last 20 seconds, <laughs> while you make that sound like something because you do that every day and precision <laughs> teachers do that every day, this is a profound 20 seconds that you just dropped into our podcast. It took me, I guess, more than a decade to come to terms with, you know, the criticisms that are often thrown at, I want to say ABA, but not the science itself, but some of uh, the mechanisms within the science. And what you're talking about there is when a skill would be considered mastered. So it's a, it's a pretty profound statement that you've just said there. Um, and so it, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more there about mastery or rapes or whether that's something we come back to at a later date. But what you said there is a tool that many people can take to ensure that their teaching is going to last beyond their teaching session. Is that kind of a fair assumption of, of what rapes is? So what's the point of teaching anything if it's not usable? I think exactly. that's where that's what it comes down to. And so we've been tasked with a job or several jobs to teach kids or people these things. And if it's not showing up in the natural environment, I don't know how many times I've had parents say to me like, well, they said it was mastered at school, but I never seen my kid do it. What's yeah. the point, right? It's not usable. Yeah, exactly. It's not usable. And so when we look to our mastery criteria, I think we need to be critical about it. And I think it, within the precision teaching world, we've done a lot of research. We actually have validated outcomes data on what we call frequency aim ranges are. So how, just how fluent, how high of a rate of responding do you need to be able to engage in in order to make this so it works in the natural environment? So precision teachers have done a nice job on validating that the, those outcomes with data. Ma Amy actually just d dug into a, a literature review on mastery criteria in general, and I'll let her speak to what she found with that. But outside of those RESA or REAPS data, there is not a lot that is backing up the mastery criteria that we use in the field of ABA. Oftentimes you hear 80% correct across two days or three days or 90%. Anyway, I'll let Amy fill in the details on that. But I think it's really a good thing to think about in terms of why are we even doing this in the first place? And if it's not producing the outcome, then maybe we're not doing it enough. Maybe we're not practicing enough. Maybe you're not holding our learners to a high enough standard or getting those rates to a high enough frequency. Just as a comparison for our audience, because we have behavioralists listening here and OTs, I think that, you know, you could also go back and listen to Rick's podcast on why percent correct, you know, has its challenges, but maybe you could just explain there. Let's just say I gave you the task of going into a classroom in a skill that you had been training or somebody had been training, let's say shoe tying. And so I said, can you go and do a, an observation of this kid tying their shoes in the natural environment at school or at home? How might a precision teacher measure that compared to say um, a behavior analyst that's gonna measure percent correct? How would those two data comparisons look if you were taking you know, a traditional mastery criteria, say of, you know, 80% correct versus a precision teacher that's going to uh, look at rate or 
a right of that skill. I love the discussion about percent correct versus RESA and fluency outcomes. And, and anyway, but what I want to get to is that we will, because we define fluency a certain way, and because we can only really capture those outcomes by looking at rate of response, we are then driven towards measuring behavior in a different way. So we have to count responses, which is something you can do when you're collecting data on percent correct. You count how many correct responses and how many incorrect responses, right? But there's no way to get that information in terms of frequency or count per minute unless you're also measuring the time that it takes to do that. That measurement system or the need to adhere to that measurement system to get the kind of data that we need to make the kind of decisions and understand whether we're producing fluency, that drives us again towards we have to be setting up our instruction and our practice activities and our assessment activities in such a way that the learner is able to engage in lots of responding and we can collect a lot of data on their responding. So these things all kind of guide each other so that it ends up being a complete system for how you define behavior, how you measure behavior. And then of course we use the standard acceleration chart, which kind of helps us look at frequency data. So all of that ends up going together because Liz and I have tried to figure out if RESA is even visible to us on other graphic displays and without having access to frequency data, we just can't do the same kind of work and ensure that we've produced RESA outcomes. And I think that's not to say that, so like I use what we call discrete trial teaching. I use that on a daily basis with a lot of my learners and RESA doesn't apply to that because the frequencies are so much lower for things like that. And so when we're talking about like manding, for example, nobody wants to teach any kid to man that, you know, 120 mans per minute. That's basically like shaping up a big nag and nobody wants that. (laughs) So that's not a skill we would teach in fluency. However, that skill can become fluent. It'll just take a lot longer period of time because if you think about fluency-based, like when we use fluency-based instruction, learners are responding at 50 to 70 responses per minute. That's a lot of responses in a very short period of time. When you're doing discrete trials, it might take you two weeks to get 50 responses in, especially if you're not controlling for that. If you're doing, you know, letting your staff just decide how many trials each day they're going to do, then you're going to have variability with it. So manding can get fluent after enough practice, but I don't know that we have the data. Actually, I do know that we don't have the data to say what that criteria needs to be. So when I'm teaching people how to make database decisions on discrete trial data, and this is frequency data, not percent correct, that, you know, they might say, oh, we're going to, you know, do 80% or eight out of 10 correct responses two days in a row. And then they move on and I'm like, how do you know that's good enough? And they don't. And so we're, we're looking at things like looking to the natural environment to see like, is it showing up now? And if it's not, then is there any other things that we, we can look for? But you can't do that with percent correct. And I'm sure Rick talked about this, but with percent correct, you don't even know how many times the behavior occurred. 
because yeah. they've calculated it into the, put it in the formula and calculated it. So that is um, just something to think about with that. Can I just uh, pop in a pause button right there for, from the OT standpoint? <laughs> so fluency is, it was completely novel to me. When I first uh, was exposed to PT, I was like, what is this fluency? But the more I learned about it and I just thought, wow, this is, this could really enhance OT interventions, especially because we have such a short time. You know, we get what, maybe 15 minutes a week to make a difference. And so we don't necessarily have the time to do those repertoires and repetitions that you're uh, indicating. But with precision teaching, there's definitely a way to pack it in, in your 15 minute session, but then use that sort of model of um, making sure caregivers and etc. are following through the rest of the week. And I did it myself this past year in the school system, and I saw the results. But fluency is not talked about in OT ever, Um, maybe in reading, like that's where the common person knows about fluency, but it's not sort of transferred over. But anytime I started thinking about fluency, it was always about coming up with that um, in, you know, in PT, that pinpoint. And I think that's where I really would like your help in helping the audience understand how to come up with that pinpoint because as I mentioned, our SMART goals are quite broad. And even when we break them out, they're still very broad compared to what we need in PT. So can either of you stop the um, chat about that, about how do we come up with a pinpoint? So a pinpoint is a very specific way of describing what a single countable behavior is. Even though our goal is the same, The process of pinpointing allows us to say, what exactly are we counting? And that that's kind of in how we describe it. So a pinpoint has something called a movement cycle. That is what is one count of the behavior. And since we're focusing on getting multiple of those in order to count correctly, then we have to be looking at kind of a smaller version of that. So a pinpoint for that would be really really useful because we can get a lot of data from it. Part of the process of pinpointing is breaking down those goals into those component skills. Like we talked about looking at toothbrushing and looking just at one of the specific movements that we want to measure and target and and build up. So the pinpoint itself would be you take that one big task analysis or activity analysis and you would break it into potentially multiple pinpoints that you might work on all at the same time, or you might work on them successively, kind of one by one until you hit your goals or your your aims on each one of those. Liz, do you want to add to that? So in precision teaching, when, when we're pinpointing, we are really s- obviously super narrow in terms of what we're looking at. So the shoe tying example has all those different steps that are going to be in that task analysis. And when we're thinking about that big overarching goal of shoe tying, if we just tell our learner to practice doing the whole s- process over and over and over again and don't break it down, if our learners can't pinch, they're never going to meet that larger goal, right? And so breaking it down into those specific pinpoints, so one of them might be pinching, one of them might be like making a loop, one of them might be crossing the laces. Um, And I literally did this recently with, with a learner. 
And so we would go through phases on our chart of all we're doing this week is pinching. And we're going to pick up the lace with our pincher finger and drop it, pick it up, drop it, pick it up, drop it, pick it up, drop it. Then the next phase would be making the loop, making the loop, making the loop, making the loop, crossing the loop, cross like, and so we would just be, be building that fluency upon that. If you tell me to go solve chemistry equations right now, and if I, you just say, just keep going and, and doing it and practicing it, and I don't know what all of the individual elements are, let me tell you, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. And so if you think about it in those same terms, well, first she needs to identify what BR means. And then she has to know how many, I mean, I don't even, I, I can't even believe can't, I'm using this as I love an example. it when you end up coming like, up with an example you can't even do. Yeah, I'm like, do they have ions? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so like how many positive and negative and how do they fit together? Like all of those are specific pinpoints that fit into this bigger composite level skill of solving chemical equations. And so all of these little motor movements are also separate skills that fit into this bigger skill of shoe tying. And so if we don't break it down into those components, then it's almost just like you're beating a dead horse, right? So you're just doing the same thing over and over and over. But those, if you were to just focus in on those little pinpoints, you do quick bursts of practice, like you were talking about, like breaking those things down, getting them to fluency. You can do that in 15 minutes a day. And within, you know, depending on your learner and what, where they're at with their, you know, physical abilities, you could have a learner completely going from not knowing how to tie shoes to tying shoes in a couple, like two or three months. But you have to break those skills down and, and address them individually. And that way you also know where the problem is. So you might find then, Liz, that when you start to train one of those individual skills, one of those pinpoints, is that the, the, the learner has uh, something missing in their ability to do that. So in other words, that may have to slice back and train a finer skill. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So generally what, what I do is anything that's a chain behavior, um, we have a task analysis for it. And then we go through and we test the whole task analysis and anything that wasn't, they were not able to do independently, that gets pulled out as a separate behavior or a separate pinpoint. And so then we'll build fluency on these pinpoints and what we call more of a micro level of measurement. So we're measuring every day as we're doing this practice. But then maybe once a week or once every two weeks, I take them through the whole task analysis again. So that's kind of like my check for that generalization piece. And so then I can start to see once those component skill, the smaller skills come to fluency, we start to get the whole task analysis for free, if you will. So one thing I want to point out about this that I think is really cool is that when you're working on pinpoints and you're practicing kind of a smaller subset of the larger goal and you're just kind of checking the larger goal. I'm not sure how OTs do it, but one thing we run into seeing a behavior analyst do this is that sometimes what happens is you just keep measuring the bigger goal. And two things are totally sucky about that. One is it sucks for you as the interventionist because you're not seeing progress. And it sucks for the learner because the learner is only accessing failure. So what I really like about that, the process of breaking it down, working on these pinpoints, having something that they might be making small incremental progress on every single day is that everybody gets to celebrate every day. 
And I think that's a huge piece of what I've, you know, what I've really fallen in love with about this way of doing things is I'm still getting my data on whether I'm making progress on the larger goals. But by taking data on those smaller things, I get to celebrate at the end of the day, even though I maybe didn't go from zero to a hundred, but I made some progress and I can feel that and my learner can see that too. Oh, I love that, Amy, because I, I do see that as an OT. Uh, OTs get really bogged down. They're like, plus, I'm just not making any progress with this student. And yes, it, most of the time it's because we're practicing the whole darn thing, right? I mean, even in activity analysis, we're not as refined as you are. So we might say, you know, we'll do two steps or three steps, but that, that might just be too big. Um, so I guess the only other question I was thinking of from an OT standpoint is, how do I, as an OT, know that this is how many repetitions he should have accurately for fluency? Like, what? how would I figure out the aim of the fluency for each of those stages? There's a couple different places, I think, and there's different numbers. So that's one thing that's great about RESA is that we continue to revalidate these numbers with research over and over. So in Rick Kubina's book, there is, isn't there a fluency aims table towards the back yeah, of that? So that's one an appendix. That's one okay. place. And then there's also floating around out there. Um, there's a organization called the Organization for Research and Learning, and they're based here in Seattle. That's actually where I did my first 10, 12 years of, of training. They work with children that have autism, and they put out a set of flu of fluency aims um, that they basically collect a ton of data from all of their learners. And they say, where do all of our learners meet the RESA aims? Where, where can they pass those outcomes checks? And so they, they publish those aims. And so those are two places and they're really generous with sharing that information as well. So we could probably get copy. Yeah. Actually, I've got a copy on my computer. I can get, but the, I think the one thing that's great about precision teaching and about this process is that every learner is going to have a unique number, right? So that that's why we use ranges. So we'll say it's 50 to 70 correct responses per minute. So that means some learners can pass it at 50, some need to go to 70. I think one of the things that's great about using the standard acceleration chart and being so precise with these things is that for every single one of my learners, I have this range. So I try to get them up to that range. And then I do one of these outcomes checks. And if they pass, then great, I know what their number is. But if they fail, then that range is not good enough. Then it allows me to validate these aims for every single individual learner. And that's a process. That's actually one of the things we're, we're working on setting up in one of our courses is teaching people how to do that with those RESA checks. But a good starting place would be those those ranges that are available in Rick's book. And then from, I think it's a PDF document that we can send over to you. So it's based on age, I'm guessing. No, it's not. Oh. It's uh, oh. just human behavior. I mean, there are definitely some things that are developmentally not going to happen. Like if you want to know like how fast a two-year-old can type, like that just doesn't make sense, right? So right, right. I wouldn't apply the typing aim that's given wherever to a two-year-old. Also, if there's physiological components going on, then those aims are not going to be a good calibration. So you have to like rule out all of those things. And that's where I think good collaboration is really helpful. Like if I have a learner who I know has seizures or has a physical 
something physical going on with their hands or something, then I'm going to look at their fine motor aims very differently than I would with somebody who doesn't. Yeah, that's what I was wondering, because as OTs, we work with a lot of students who have physical limitations, Mm -hmm. you know. So in that case, you know, especially if you're using the standard acceleration chart, it's very learner driven. So you would start and see what they can do and you would build frequency until it Mm -hmm. flattens out. And so once it flattens out, then, you know, like either there's a component skill missing, something's wrong, or there's a physical limitation. And so then I might do one of those RESA checks. And if they pass it at that frequency where it flattened out, then I know that's their frequency. You have to keep all of those things in in consideration when you're looking at those ranges that are published, at least. Is one of the checks, for instance, where you you talked about reps there, but uh, an important probe you can do, I guess, is, uh, first of all, you get to know your learner very well because you're looking at um, their ability to move on these skills and how quickly a learner will move on, but also what schedule of reinforcement, you know, et cetera, is... um, underlying the ability for a learner to engage in that behavior but also is it one of those checks is that if a child is losing those skills or they're not showing up at a higher level in other words they're not retaining is that that rate may not be high enough for mastery of that pinpoint yeah one of the things about the mastery criteria when we were talking about that earlier is one of the studies that was conducted was if we get learners to this mastery criteria, does it produce maintenance? And which is what we call retention. Yeah. When we're talking about maintenance, that's again, can it occur after a period of no practice? Do they still have it after we've kind of put it on hold and considered it mastered? And what was found was that even at 90% accuracy, that didn't predict maintenance. Certainly 90% was better than 80% was much better than 50%. So if you mastered something at 50% for whatever reason, you're less likely to get maintenance. But one thing that was really clear from at least one of the studies I read, and I can share these with you if you'd like, at least one of them said it didn't make any difference. So we can get to even 100% accuracy, but without enough Sometimes it's just, we just didn't practice enough. And sometimes it's just the number of opportunities, but also we can increase the number of opportunities by also kind of increasing the pace of their opportunities by doing it in kind of a time-based free-flowing activity. So there's a few things that play into that. Um, But I would say certainly most of the time there is a, that frequency, that range of frequencies just wasn't necessarily achieved. Yeah. So as an example, uh, I'm just saying this because I do a lot of shoe tying, is that if let's just say you've trained that first step of pincer grip, you have it to an aim, you know, either for that learner or an aim that you have from some other assessment and you go to do a retention check on that component and it's not at the rate at which you passed it out that might indicate, for instance, that that wasn't, uh, that wasn't fluent, that component. Is that better to say? And I guess the missing piece here that I want to share with those of you who are, are not are familiar with the chart is that this tool of the standard acceleration chart, this uh, 20-week chart that would be before you, is just going to contain so much information about your learner. So 
those things that are difficult in, uh, at least in my experience in, in some programs to keep data and look at where the learner is. Things like retention checks, phase changes that you implemented for, you know, changes in how you're reinforcing a learner. That all appears on this chart, both the larger skill and. Good morning, Molly. Oh, that's my daughter just walking in. <laughs> Um, uh, Sorry about that. (laughs) That's Autism uh, Live. On that note, seems appropriate to take a break there. Thank you to Liz and Amy for sharing all of their incredible knowledge in relation to setting goals and getting outcomes. Sorry about the autism break there. That's part of early morning household uh, over here in (laughs) WA as we're recording very early in the morning. We look forward to the next part of Liz and Amy's conversation and see you in episode 21.